Thank you for Riley, or to Riley for leading us, and uh, a pleasure to worship with all of you, a joy to open the Word of God to you. And uh, as I, I thought about what message I might bring uh, this evening, my mind did indeed uh, get brought back to the doctrine of sanctification, to the doctrine of the believer's practical growth in Christian holiness. And uh, the doctrine of sanctification concerns all of us who are in Christ here this evening, because it is where we all live. Everyone who is a member of the new covenant by faith in Jesus Christ for righteousness is currently in the process of transformation, in the process of sanctification. And why is that? Because the gospel that justifies sanctifies The Christ who is glorious to save us from sin's penalty is so glorious that He saves us from sin's power as well. Every Christian is currently living in between the time of our past justification and our future glorification in the present pursuit of Christ-likeness. Sanctification is our daily, our hourly, our moment-by-moment task. And so, we need to get this right. We are commanded, Philippians 1.27, to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Paul prays in Colossians 1.10 that we would desire to please the Lord in all respects. And if we love our Savior, we long for Him to get what He is worthy of from us. And we know that He is worthy of a pure bride. We want to put His sanctifying glory on display. We want to show forth the evidence of His kingly power to conquer and subdue sin in the lives of His people. And if all of that is true, we need to be crystal clear on how we are to go about growing in holiness on how God accomplishes this work of sanctification in His people so that you and I might be more thoroughly equipped to pursue holiness in our own lives and to be instruments of sanctification in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And to do that, I want to turn to 2 Corinthians 3.18, one of the most foundational texts in the New Testament on the doctrine of sanctification. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul is contrasting the ministry of the Old Covenant with the ministry of the New Covenant. He is seeking to demonstrate that even though the Old Covenant was so glorious, the New Covenant is so much more glorious that it far outshines even the Old. In verses 16 and 17, he speaks of several benefits of the New Covenant. And when he finally comes to verse 18, he tells us of a peak new covenant blessing. He says that the glory of the triune God that we behold shining in the face of Christ progressively transforms us into the image of Christ. In other words, unlike the old covenant, which Hebrews 7.19 says, made nothing perfect, the new covenant sanctifies us. And 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us how. Paul writes, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, 
are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. And this evening, I want to reflect on the implications of this verse, compare it with what the rest of the New Testament teaches, and in that way, help us to understand key truths about what holiness is, what sanctification is, with the goal that we would have a firm grasp on how it is that we are to put sanctification into practice, because that is what Jesus is worthy of. And we'll do it in three parts. First, we'll draw out some key theological principles for sanctification. Second, we'll look briefly into what Scripture says about the means of sanctification. And finally, we'll look into the dynamics of sanctification, about how it is that God goes about supernaturally conforming us into the image of His Son. That'll be our broad outline, the principles, the means, and the dynamics of sanctification. We'll begin first with three principles. And the first principle that I want to draw from our text is that the believer's growth in holiness is fundamentally internal and supernatural. Fundamentally internal and supernatural. You look at the text, you say, I don't see that there. Where is that in 2 Corinthians 3.18? Well, it's in the word transformed. We all are being transformed into the same image. This is the term metamorpho. It's where we get the English word metamorphosis. But unlike our term metamorphosis, which speaks about the change of the outward form, every Greek dictionary will tell you that this word describes a person's inward transformation, an internal change in someone's fundamental character. Philippians 2.13 makes that point explicitly. There, Paul says that God works in us both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So, in the process of progressive sanctification, God is working in us, not just that we might work, but that we might also will rightly. He's working even on our desires. And Romans 12.2 is another one. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, more internal language. And the point is, therefore, that sanctification cannot simply mean bringing our outward behavior into conformity to an external standard. Holiness does require holy behavior, but that's not all it requires. Why? Well, because you don't need the supernatural indwelling power of the Holy Spirit to read your Bible, to pray, to go to church. You can do all those things and not have that be motivated from an internal desire to please the Lord. You can use strong willpower. You could need a strong conscience. If you have those, you could do those outward good things. Hypocrites can conform to the external trappings of religion, all the while remaining destitute of holy desires, of holy affections. But that's not the sanctification to which God calls us. We are called, Joel 2.13, to rend our hearts and not merely our garments. 
this inward transformation of the mind or the heart or the character will work itself out in external behavior, to be sure. But that transformation begins internally. Charles Hodge puts it helpfully. He says, sanctification does not consist exclusively in a series of a new kind of acts. It is the making the tree good in order that the fruit may be good. It involves an essential change of character. Just as regeneration is a new birth, a new creation, a quickening or communicating a new life, so sanctification in its essential nature is not holy acts, but such a change in the state of the soul that sinful acts become more infrequent and holy acts more habitual and controlling. Hodge says, sanctification is making the tree good. It's it's uprooting the plant and placing it in fertile soil so that the tree can bear fruit. You don't take fruit and staple it to a tree. The fruit has to be produced by the life of the plant, and that life flows only as we, the branches, remain sapped to Christ, our vine. That life comes only through our vital union with Christ. Sanctification is not merely new acts which can be counterfeited by hypocrites. It's an internal change in the soul of a man or woman. And so, the sanctification that we must press after is both internal and external. We must have sanctified affections as well as sanctified actions, because God has not simply commanded us to carry out a series of external duties. He's also commanded us to have a particular frame of heart as we do those external duties. You can call them internal duties if you like. Just one quick example, Paul tells us later in this book in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, that God loves a cheerful giver. So if God loves a cheerful giver, and you faithfully put that envelope in that plate every week, but you do it begrudgingly, without cheerfulness, have you obeyed? Well, you've obeyed the command to give, but you've not obeyed the command to give cheerfully. So you see, God commands our affections as well as our actions, not just to do justly, but to love mercy, not just to shepherd the flock, but to do so willingly and eagerly. He commands us not only to behave righteously, but to be holy. And that means that the truly holy person doesn't merely do what God commands outwardly, though, of course, He certainly does that, but it goes deeper than that. The holy person loves what God loves, and then he acts in keeping with this renewed heart. As God works in us both to will and to work for His good pleasure, He inclines our hearts to treasure the glory of Jesus. And as we behold Him with the eyes of our hearts, our minds and our affections are renewed. And so that we, we love Him more and we love sin less. And therefore, we are transformed from the inside out. If that wasn't the case and sanctification was just a matter of performing external duties, well, then the right way for us to exhort one another to greater holiness would just be to say, well, try harder, be better, do gooder. You know, bear down, grit your teeth, give it the old college try. 
And though that's a bit of a caricature, many Christians conceive of sanctification in a way that's not fundamentally different than that. And what you have there is the kind of moralistic externalism that depends not on the power of the Spirit of God working within you, but on the strength of your own willpower, whether your heart is properly engaged or not. Some people even celebrate that they did their duty even though they hated it. Well, if holiness was fundamentally an external matter, Nike sanctification would be the way to go. Just do it. But because this dynamic of transformation is a fundamentally internal and supernatural work in the heart of man, which God, in which God progressively conforms our affections to the affections of Christ, our pursuit of holiness looks a lot different. We need to realize that we can't directly effect that internal supernatural transformation in ourselves. We can't change our own hearts. We need God to do that work in us. That brings us to a second principle. Sanctification is a sovereign work of the Spirit of God. It's a sovereign work of the Spirit of God. We read it before in Philippians 2.13. It is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work, for His good pleasure. That only makes sense. A fundamentally internal and supernatural work cannot be done by us. We have to be dependent on the one who works in us. That's why in so many of the key texts on sanctification, you hear the passive voice used so very often. Romans 12, 2, we mentioned it before, we're commanded not transform yourselves by renewing your minds, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. In our text, in 2 Corinthians 3, 18, it doesn't say, beholding, we transform ourselves. No, it says, beholding, we are being transformed. Well, by whom? Well, by the God who is at work within us. And so, one theologian says that sanctification consists fundamentally in a divine operation in the soul. When you are growing in holiness, God Himself is working in your soul directly to make you more like His Son. And He does this by His Holy Spirit. Galatians 5.17 says, The Spirit sets His desire against the flesh, and that these are in opposition to one another. A few verses later in Galatians 5, we learn that those virtues that compose a character of integrity and holiness are called the fruit of the Spirit. And if you look at our text again in 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul tells us at the end of this verse that this whole process of transformation is just as from the Lord, the Spirit. And so there's no mistaking it. The work of sanctification is God's work. But that brings us to the famous question. If the internal and supernatural work of sanctification is properly said to be the Spirit's work, well, then what does the believer do? Are we just passive, dependent upon the sovereign whims of the Spirit to sanctify us as He pleases? Does it fall to us to just relax and yield and surrender and to let go and let God? The answer to that question is absolutely not. 
It is precisely because of the sovereign work of the Spirit in us that we must pursue holiness by a diligent effort. Paul commands us again in Philippians 2, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And then he says, for or because the reason that you work out your salvation is because it is God who is at work within you. You see, God's work in us is not an excuse for us not to work. Well, He's got it. I'm just going to sit back and relax. No, according to Paul, it's the very ground of our working. It's because He works that we can work at all, and it's because He works that we must work. Peter says the same thing in 2 Peter 1. He tells us, verse 3, God's divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And in verse 4, he says, because of Christ's work, we have escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. That sounds very definitive. That sounds very complete. We've got everything we need. We've escaped. And then he says in verse 5, the very next verse, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And so, on the one hand, sanctification is the sovereign work of the Spirit of God. On the other hand, believers are exhorted to work out our own salvation, to pursue sanctification, Hebrews 12, 14, without which no one will see the Lord. So, are we contradicting ourselves here? Do we just throw up our hands in confusion and attribute this to divine mystery? No, I don't believe we can afford to do that. And I don't think the Scriptures leave us with no further light on the matter. See, while it is unmistakable that the Spirit of God is the sovereign agent of sanctification, that in no way contradicts the reality that He effects this transformation through the use of means which the believer must appropriate. And that's principle number three, fundamentally internal and supernatural sovereign work of the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit employs means in sanctifying the believer, in doing His sovereign work. So far then, from our being passive in the matter, from yielding or surrendering, we are to make every effort, as Peter says, to avail ourselves of the means through which the Spirit does His work. And I've found no better illustration of this then from a Scottish Puritan named Henry Scougal. And he illustrates this this way. He says, All the art and industry of man cannot form the smallest herb or make a stalk of corn to grow in the field. It is the energy of nature and the influences of heaven which produce this effect. And then he quotes Psalm 104, It is God who causeth the grass to grow and the herb for the service of man. And yet nobody will say that the labors of the farmer are useless or unnecessary. See what he's saying? Human beings can't make grass grow. We can't go outside, concentrate really hard, wave our hands, and make the land sprout fruit and vegetables. That is God's work. You put a seed in the ground, and all of a sudden, months later, you've got crops to eat and sell. And yet nobody would suggest that a responsible farmer should just sit sit back and wait for his land to magically yield crops as a result of divine fiat. 
No, God has ordained to do the work that only He can do by means of the farmer's labors, by the cultivation of the soil, by the sowing of the seed, by the watering of the plant. Farmer doesn't do that, nothing happens. Well, in the same way, we can't change our own hearts to make us more holy. We can't just sort of concentrate really hard and wave our hands and turn ourselves in to more Christ-like men and women. Sanctification is a sovereign work of the Spirit of God. But God has ordained that the Spirit accomplish that work through means. And so when Scripture commands us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, it's commanding us to make diligent use of the means the Spirit employs in effecting our holiness. When Scripture uses a passive imperative, like be transformed, commanding us to have something done to us, Well, it's commanding us then to put ourselves in the way of those channels of grace which the Spirit uses to conform us to the image of Christ. You say, what are those means? That brings us just briefly to part two. Normally, I'd spend some more time on this. Uh, Five means which we can appropriate, and by doing so, put ourselves in the way of the Spirit's sanctifying work. I'm only going to briefly survey them, partly because you know them, and also because we're going to cycle back through them in the third part of the sermon. So, first, we put ourselves in the way of the Spirit's sanctifying work when we read and meditate on Scripture. Peter exhorts us, 1 Peter 2, 2, long for the pure milk of the Word so that by it, by the Word, you may grow in respect to salvation. Jesus says it plainly in John 17, 17, Father, sanctify them by the truth. Your Word is truth. The people of God are sanctified by the Word of God. Second means is prayer. The Father has ordained that His children receive the good gifts of His grace by the means of our asking for those gifts. And so the writer of Hebrews entreats us to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace for help in times of need. Prayer is a means of finding grace to help us when we need God's help. And if we acknowledge that the work of sanctification is fundamentally internal and supernatural and a sovereign work of the Spirit of God, well, then it only makes sense that we would have to ask Him to do His work. And so prayer sanctifies. Third, fellowship. Fellowship. Hebrews 3.12 tells us that one way that we guard against being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin is by regularly encouraging one another day after day in the context of the fellowship of the local church and interaction with other believers. Hebrews 10, let us not forsake assembling together, but let us stimulate one another to love and good deeds. If love and good deeds is a result of my sanctification, one means by which I'm brought to that result is that I'm stimulated to love and good deeds by the fellowship of fellow believers. Fourth means, providence. One of our favorite verses, Romans eight twenty eight, tells us that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him. That means that 
God providentially ordains everything in our lives to work for our good. You say, what good is that? Well, Paul defines it in the very next verse when he says, Romans 8, 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. Every experience we have is a minister of God's providence that is designed to make us more like Christ. And so, interpreting the events of providence biblically is a means of our growing into Christ-likeness. And then a fifth means, obedience. And I've said a couple times that external acts of obedience are properly understood as the result of the inward sanctification that the Spirit works in the heart. It is error to simply equate holiness with the performance of external duties as if the two were strictly synonymous. But Scripture does teach that obedience itself is also a means of further progress in holiness. We learn that from Jesus' words in John 15, 10. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. So just as a branch abides in its vine and produces fruit, we will be fruitful insofar as we stay sapped to our vine, insofar as we abide in Him. And one of the means by which we abide in Him, he says, is to keep His commandments. Like I said before, commandment keeping is the result of love. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. But here we learn that walking in the way of Christ's commandments produces even more love for Him. It's a glorious cycle of the grace of God. Love produces obedience, and obedience causes us to abide in Him, and it produces more love. And that more love produces more obedience, and that is the gracious cycle of the Christian life. Fellowship, or excuse me, Scripture, prayer, fellowship, providence and obedience. Sanctifying grace flows through all of those channels. We can't perform the divine operation on our souls that would make us more holy, but we can pursue holiness. Indeed, we must pursue holiness by availing ourselves of these means by which the Spirit of God performs this divine operation. Now I want to focus part three on how it is that those means actually work. I want to look at the dynamics of sanctification. Why is it that the Word of God and prayer and fellowship with the saints sanctify us? You all knew that before you came in. How do I be more holy? Well, I've got to read my Bible. I've got to pray. I've got to go to church. Why? Why does it work that way? Well, the answer to that question comes by considering one other means of sanctification that Scripture provides to us. But it's not just another means among many. It's actually the foundational means that renders all the other means efficacious. This one makes the rest of them work. And we find it back in our text in 2 Corinthians 3, 18. I'll read it again. Paul writes, But we all... With unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord 
the Spirit. That's a very complex sentence, but if you had to boil it down to its main parts, you'd get, beholding, we are transformed. Beholding, we're transformed. As believers, behold the glory of Jesus by faith with the eyes of our heart. We are thereby progressively conformed into His image. That's Paul's teaching. Or, as the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 12, 2, it's quoted from the baptistry a few moments ago, we run the race of the Christian life by fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Like Moses in Hebrews eleven twenty six and 27, we are strengthened to endure all manner of temptation by believing God's promises, which the author describes there in the language of looking to the reward. He endured not fearing the wrath of the king. He was looking to the reward, and he was seeing him who is unseen, a language of spiritual sight. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4.18, the last verse of our, the next chapter, that momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison while we look with the eyes of faith, not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. And then in 1 John 3, 2, we learn that even unto glorification, our degree of Christ-likeness is directly proportional to our beholding His glory, so that as we see Him now, we're transformed into His image from glory to glory. And when we see Him perfectly, we'll be transformed into His image perfectly. 1 John 3, 2, we know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. And so, the means by which we are transformed into Christ-likeness is beholding the glory of the Lord. One writer says, beholding is becoming. Beholding is becoming. You become what you behold. And again, why is that so? How does the spiritual sight of Christ supernaturally cause us to increase in holiness? This is key. It's because the spiritual sight of Christ, by virtue of the delightfulness and the beauty of His glory causes us to admire Him in such a way that we are satisfied by Him and that we don't seek satisfaction, therefore, in lesser sinful pleasures. The glory of Christ captures our affections, and it molds them into conformity with the divine will. It causes us to love what He loves and to hate what He hates. And then, our renewed affections, our new loves, our new desires inform and direct our will. We want to do what we love, and we want to get away from what we hate. That's axiomatic. And then when our wills are properly informed by sanctified affections, we do what we want. We joyfully obey the commands of God, which 1 John 5, 3 says are not burdensome. The mind perceives truth. The heart is changed by it so it loves it. The will wants what the heart loves, and the hands do what the will wants. 
mind, affections, will, actions, all of them, and in that order. Charles Hodge says again, the Spirit especially opens the eyes to see the glory of Christ, to see that He is God manifest in the flesh, to discern not only His divine perfections, but His love to us and His suitableness in all respects as our Savior. Then Hodge says, this apprehension of Christ, this spiritual sight of Christ is transforming. The soul is thereby changed into His image from glory to glory by the Spirit of the Lord. And John Owen summarizes this beautifully. He writes in the glory of Christ, let us live in the constant contemplation of the glory of Christ and virtue will proceed from Him to repair all our decays, to renew a right spirit within us and to cause us to abound in all duties of obedience. Contemplating the glory of Christ will fix the soul unto that object which is suited to give it delight, complacency, and satisfaction. When the mind is filled with thoughts of Christ and His glory, when the soul thereon cleaves unto Him with intense affections, they will cast out or not give admittance unto those causes of spiritual weakness and indisposition. And nothing will so much excite and encourage our souls hereunto as a constant view of Christ and His glory. Now, the implications of this for our practical pursuit of holiness, are staggering. It teaches us that in all of our diligent efforts to appropriate the means of grace that the Spirit uses to accomplish His great work of sanctification, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ stands at the very center, giving life to all of those means. You see, in our Bible reading, in our prayer, in our times of fellowship with other believers, in all of our experiences of divine providence, and in our striving to keep the Lord's commandments, our aim is to saturate the eyes of our hearts with this awe-satisfying vision of the glory of God revealed in the face of Christ. So let's cycle back through briefly each of those five means and see how beholding the glory of Christ undergirds each one of them. Number one, why does Jesus pray that the Father would sanctify His people by His Word? Well, if you pair 2 Corinthians 3.18 with chapter 4, verse 6, kind of the end of the paragraph, we need to conclude that it's because the Word of God reveals the glory of God. The Word of God reveals the glory of God. God has chosen to reveal Himself by His Word undergirding and vivifying the sanctifying power of the written Word is the sanctifying glory of the living Word. Say, where does Scripture teach us that? Well, think back to Exodus 33 where Moses is crying out, show me your glory. I want to see you. I want to know you. And God responds a few verses later in Exodus 34, 5 to 7, not merely by passing by in the glory cloud and showing Him Shekinah glory, but passing by, the text says, and proclaiming, right? What is God passes by and says, Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, 
God preaches his character to Moses and doesn't just show him his manifest glory. 1 Samuel 3, God calls Samuel into prophetic ministry. And in verse 21, it says, Yahweh appeared again at Shiloh because Yahweh revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of Yahweh. Yahweh appeared by the word. There is this intimate relationship between God's glory and His Word. The Word is a vehicle for communicating glory. Scripture sanctifies because Scripture supernaturally reveals the glory of God in the face of Christ. And when we behold that glory, we're transformed into that same image. Now, I hope you can see how that ought to transform your daily devotions. It means you don't go to the Word every morning just to check off boxes on the reading plan. You're not reading just to gather information or to learn new theology or to uh, find out about new apologetic arguments. It means you're going to the Word every day to see Jesus, to get to know Him, to admire Him so that you, you fall in love with this beauty that's revealed and the shackles of the allurements of sin break. It means every time your Bible is open, you're praying with Moses, show me your glory. Psalm 119.18, right? Open my eyes that I might behold not just wonderful things out of your Word, but a wonderful Savior out of your Word. You're like Jacob wrestling with the Lord in Genesis 32, and you're saying, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me with the light of, my count- uh, the light of your countenance. My heart is cold. My will is backward, Lord, but I am here until you show up and satisfy me in the morning with your loving kindness. You're asking the Father to give you eyes to see Christ as He is, a heart to treasure Him and to worship Him for what you see. The same is true for prayer. Rather than just praying to ease your conscience or when you need something or just as some sort of catharsis, you need to see prayer as the occasion for personal worship. We have corporate worship on Sunday mornings and evenings. You have personal worship before the throne of God at your kitchen table or in your, at your desk every morning. In Scripture, Prayerful communion is often represented by the metaphor of seeking God's face in worship. Psalm 105.4 says, Seek Yahweh and His strength. Seek His face continually. Psalm 27.8 says, When you said, Seek my face, my heart said to you, Your face, O Yahweh, I shall seek. What does it mean to seek the face of a God who has no face? Right? God is incorporeal. He has no body. He is pure spirit. Well, it means to seek communion with Him, FaceTime with Him. It means to seek a relationship with Him. Psalm 27.4 calls prayer, beholding and meditating upon the beauty of the Lord. Prayer is beholding God's beauty. This is the time for you to meditate on the beauty of the Lord's manifold perfections as He's revealed them to you in His Word and as He's shown them to you in the experiences of providence. It's time to praise Him for His goodness and bounty, 
to taste the goodness of his infinite sufficiency as you present your requests before him. Lord, I need help. I cannot handle this day at work. I cannot handle this issue with the kids. I, can, I do not know where to go from here. And Lord, it's a delight for me to lay these requests upon the shoulders of an almighty Savior. John Owen wrote, The things to be aimed at in prayer are the spiritual intense fixation of the mind by contemplation on God in Christ until the soul be, as it were, swallowed up in admiration and delight, and being brought unto an utter loss through the infiniteness of those excellencies which it admires and adores. So, how, how did he write like that? Well, by, by having bo- uh, just sweet communion day by day with Christ in prayer. You don't write like that unless you walk with Christ. I want my soul to be swallowed up in admiration and delight. And that doesn't happen apart from unhurried meditation upon the character of God. And as we behold His glory through prayerful communion with Him, we are transformed into that same image of glory, imperceptibly and supernaturally, but truly nonetheless. Number three. Beholding the glory of Christ is also the foundation of our sanctifying fellowship with other believers. You know, we tend to think of fellowship as just having an enjoyable time with Christian friends, and of course, it is that. Uh, We we tend to think of it as the time of a worship service or a Bible study where the teaching is over and where everybody kind of hangs out and has a snack. But true fellowship is so much deeper than that. Because every believer is being progressively conformed into the image of Christ, fellowship with other believers sanctifies us because of what we can see of Christ in one another. So one writer says, believers learn what Christ-likeness is by observing it in fellow Christians. We see the love of Christ reflected in the lives of our fellow believers. We're enriched through our contact with them. We hear Christ speaking to us through them. Believers are inspired by the examples of their fellow Christians. Sustained by their prayers, corrected by their loving admonitions, and encouraged by their support. That's to say that the beauty of a Christian's personal holiness is a derived beauty, right? To whatever degree you have been conformed to the image of Christ, to that degree you reflect that image to one another. And so the lifeblood of biblical fellowship is the glory of Jesus to be enjoyed in one another. That's what I'm concerned to see in you. I do want to hear about your vacation. I do want to hear about how the kids are doing. I want to hear about how work is going. Of course, because I care about you. But you know what I want to see uh, in you in our times of fellowship more than anything? I want to see Christ. I I want to see my Savior in His people so that I can catch a glimpse of this glory that sanctifies me, and that satisfies me. The believers that I enjoy spending time with the most are the ones that show me the most of Jesus. And I I think we ought all to aspire to be that kind of friend to our fellow brothers and sisters. I think that that should transform the way we think about our interactions with our our fellow members here at Grace Church. 
rather than just, you know, okay, amen, let's, we're shooting the breeze, we're talking about the week, superficialities, did you see the game? The focus on time spent with one another in fellowship ought to be on seeing Jesus in one another and reflecting Jesus to one another. Providence, number four, also stands on this sanctifying foundation of the glory of the Lord. When we learn to see all the experiences of life, both the joys and the trials, as gracious dispensations of God's providence, we can treasure the glory of the giver that's revealed in His gifts, and we can give Him thanks and praise for richly supplying us with all good things to enjoy. Right? If all things, joy and trial, good and bad, come from God as a gift, well, then we need to trace the glory of the gift back up to the giver. And if we do that, we behold His glory and are transformed. And that's especially the case in trials. Paul says in Philippians 3.10, I want to know Him and the fellowship of His sufferings. Why, Paul? Why, would you want to know, why don't you want to know the fellowship of His victories? Right? Well, because it's in the fellowship of His sufferings that you get to know Him in a way that you don't get to know Him in the midst of the victories. Jesus, who was He? A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He knows what it's like to suffer for righteousness' sake. And He is sure to minister comfort to those who suffer for the sake of His name. And when we experience His compassion and His comfort in times of trial, we behold with the eyes of our heart the rich display of the glory of His character. He meets you in the hospital room differently than across the graduation stage or at the end of the race or at the, you name it, you fill in the blank. You taste His sufficiency when you're, when, you, when you're just so cognizant of your need of Him, when He's humbled you, and as you walk with Him, there's more of His glory to enjoy. And because providence is always linked with creation, it'd be wrong for me not to mention Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork which means that the conscientious believer learns to see all the beauties of creation as streams of glory that trace back to the God who is the fountain of all goodness and beauty. Jonathan Edwards wrote that we have reason from the beauty of the sun to admire at the invisible glory of that God whose fingers have formed it. S-U-N. He means the, the burning disk 93 million miles away in the sky that's been burning for thousands of years at just the right temperature so that we don't freeze and don't burn up, but have life uh, in, to, for plants to grow, for sustenance. It's unbelievable. And if you pause and think about it for a moment, not just about the fact of the sun, but then the glory and beauty of a sunset or a sunrise, this is what we should be constantly training ourselves to do. We are in a theater of God's glory throughout all creation. And that, that theater presents His beauty to us, and we ought to pause and, and see Him and say, Lord, You're glorious, and pray that that sight transforms us from the inside out. And then finally, 
The glory of Christ also undergirds and motivates our acts of obedience themselves. I want you to turn with me to John chapter 14 and to verse 21. This is a verse that you read a million times, and you probably read the first half and maybe skip over the second half. I know it was like that with me when I really slowed down and saw what this verse had for the the implications of sanctification. Jesus says, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. Right? You just said that, Jesus, in John 14, 15. You love me, you'll keep my commandments. And that's why I think we tend to just kind of move by this verse. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. So keeping Christ's commandments results in further disclosure of the Savior to the eyes of our hearts. This here is the great motivator for all our efforts in obedience, in sanctification. That when I forsake sin and follow Christ in obedience, I get to see and enjoy more of Him. I will disclose myself not in ecstatic visions, but I'll show you my beauty. To the, I'll reveal it to the eyes of your heart that you see by faith, invisibly, looking upon what is unseen. And when you see Him, you'll enjoy Him. Let me ask you something. Do you know why you sin? It's not because you have to. If you're outside of Christ... If you remain dead in your transgressions and sins, enslaved by your flesh, it's because you have to. You have no other choice. You are unable not to sin. But if you're in Christ, and Christ has broken the bounds of, of sin and death in your life, and He set you free into the liberty of the children of the sons of God, you sin because... Not, not because you have to, not because somebody comes to, next to you, puts a gun to your head and says, listen, I know that you have really holy desires, but if you don't sin, I'm going to kill you right here and now. doesn't ever happen that way. No one sins out of duty. We sin because in the moment we believe that sinning will bring us something that's satisfying. We believe that it will be more enjoyable more pleasant, more rewarding on the path of disobedience than on the path of obedience. From the lecherous look on the internet to the adulterous affair to the sharp word and impatient reply to laziness that seems to promise greater comfort than diligence does. Every sin promises satisfaction, and that's why we go after it. Obedience, we think, means self-denial, and disobedience means self-fulfillment, and self-fulfillment feels good. But it's a lie. What does John 14, 21 tell us? That obedience to Christ results in further disclosure, further manifestation of Christ to the eyes of our hearts, deeper fellowship and communion with Him, a greater apprehension of the glory of His attributes, a sweeter taste of the satisfaction that comes from beholding His beauty. 
The Puritans talked about there being infinite plies in the love of Christ, infinite folds that you'd peel back as in this oversized curtain, that as you move one ply over here, it's, there's another one to push back, and that leaves another one. And there is no sin, dear people, no sin more satisfying than discovering the glory of Jesus in His Scriptures, in prayer, in fellowship, in providence, and in obedience. No sin even approaches the oceans of pleasure that are wrapped up in communion with Christ. And if I can discipline, if you can discipline your mind and your heart to remember that truth and to believe that truth in the moment of temptation, if, if I know that there is more of Him to be enjoyed on the path of obedience than on the path of disobedience, guess which path I'll choose? So you see, you fight sin like that. When you're tempted to sin and you don't feel like obeying, reason with yourself. Preach to yourself the truth that all sinning will get you is a fleeting false pleasure that destroys rather than satisfies. Ephesians 4 calls them lusts of deceit. They are not true. They lie to you. And they never deliver on the satisfaction they promise. Everyone who drinks of this fountain will be thirsty again. But I tell you, he who drinks from the water that I shall give him will never be thirsty forever. Obedience will bring you a clearer and fuller vision of the glory of your Savior, who is the greatest joy, the greatest pleasure, the greatest satisfaction that your heart can experience. And then listen, out of a desire for a superior pleasure... Not out of a, a, a dutiful discipline that says, I should want nothing. I should never want to be happy again. No, that's not the Christian life. Out of a desire for a superior pleasure to see and know and enjoy more of Christ who is more satisfying than anything. Reject the false pleasures of sin in exchange for the supreme pleasure that's found in Jesus alone. That's how the holy person responds. You're tempting me with dog food when I can have filet mignon? I, I, get it out of here. I, I don't even want to look at it, right? Something's wrong with us when we have the, the filet mignon of communion with Christ right here and dog food starts looking good. So you can be sure something has gone amiss in the soul. We're not beholding rightly. We're not seeing rightly. And so what do we do? We fight for obedience by fighting for a superior pleasure in Christ. When you do that, obedience doesn't seem burdensome. It's not the begrudging performance of mere duty. You'll not be told to bend your will and do your duty no matter how you feel about it. Just obey and the feelings will follow. No, when you realize that obedience brings the bountiful harvest of more intimate fellowship with the glorious Christ, you'll gladly put off sowing to the flesh. And you'll sow to the Spirit and from the Spirit reap life everlasting. When you treasure the glory of Christ is more surpassingly valuable, Philippians 3.8, more supremely pleasant than the false pleasures of sin, it's then that your obedience truly magnifies the supreme worth of Christ because it's rendered not as the burdensome duty of embittered slaves, but as the delightful duty of worshipers whose affection has been won by beauty and glory. That's what 2 Corinthians 3.18 does to us. 
it, it transforms the way that we see the battle for holiness. It is a fight. It is a race. It is a battle. But because the foundational means of sanctification is beholding the glory of God in the face of Christ, you recognize that race is run, that battle is fought on the, on the level of spiritual sight. The race is run fixing our eyes on Jesus, not just as our example. Like, let me look and see how He did it, so I'll do it like Him. You don't have the power to do it like Him. You have to fix your eyes on the One who is your substitute, whose glory transforms you and gives you the power to do what He did. As we work our salvation out with fear and trembling, we're conscious that it's the Spirit of God working in us illumining our eyes to the, glory of, to the glory of Christ, winning our affections by the delight and the beauty of that glory, and then having our affections inform and direct our wills, and then having our actions follow those, those sanctified wills, speaking or, or deciding, rather, that if anything is going to cloud my vision of Christ, I'm going to get rid of that thing so that I can see Him. If if the one who obeys Him, He discloses Himself to, and His disclosure Himself is the greatest thing I can imagine, then I'm going to get everything out of my life that prevents Him from disclosing Himself to me. I'm going to cast aside every encumbrance. I'm going to cut out disobedience, patterns of sin, because I want Him. That's where, his, where glory is to be enjoyed, and that's where you'll find the child of God. It's God's work to sanctify His people. It's our work to look unto Jesus and be transformed. May we put the sanctifying glory of Christ on display, Grace Church. Let us de declare to the world by our holy lives that this Jesus conquers sin, not just sin's penalty. Praise God that He conquers sin's penalty. You heard so much of it from the baptistry. It is finished. Pardon is won. Righteousness is granted. Sins are washed away. But then let's show the world that the Jesus who saves sanctifies, that the priest who washes away our stains is a king who subdues our lusts. He's worthy of a pure bride. And so if, if we're going to do that, do it the way the Scriptures tell us to, by fixing our eyes on Him and being transformed from the inside out. It's our great preoccupation. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would accomplish that very thing in us. Show us your glory shining in the face of your Son. And let that image transform us so that we look like Him, who is the image of you, the invisible God, that you would, would multiply your glory and honor throughout the earth. Get what you're worthy of in your church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.